Welcome back to Reading for a Change, a podcast from Moody Publishers, where we take an inside look at the books transforming our lives and shaping the world. Hi, my name is Drew Dick. I'm your host, and we are starting season three of the podcast, which is frankly hard for me to believe. It feels like we just started in some ways, but here we are. I think this is our 17th episode that we've recorded, and we are recording these episodes in the midst of a tough season for the whole world. Uh, unless you've been hiding under a rock for the past couple of months, you know we're in the midst of a global pandemic. And right now, uh, we're being hit particularly hard here in the US, where the number of COVID-19 cases is peaking, or at least we hope they're peaking. Uh, but every night, the news is filled with reports of the rising death toll. And of course, during this time, I think we should be praying most for the sick, for the people that are that are vulnerable to this disease, that are most at risk. But let's face it, we're all feeling this in some way. For a lot of us, this is week three or four of sheltering in place, um, which is a nice way of saying being stuck in your house day after day. Uh, on top of that, there's a lot of fear and uncertainty about the future. People are thinking about their finances, about their loved ones. So we're all a little scared. Our theme for this season of the podcast is pressing on. And we're going to take a look at a lot of practical ways we can keep moving forward in faith during this crisis. But today we're going to address some of the big questions that arise in the face of something like this, a pandemic. And I can't think of anyone better than our guest today to help us navigate those issues. I am honored to have best-selling author Philip Yancey with me today on the podcast. Philip is the author of a long list of great books, including uh, Where is God When It Hurts, Disappointment with God, The Jesus I Never Knew, What's So Amazing About Grace, and Prayer Does It Make Any Difference. Philip, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Drew. Well, thank you for being with me. First of all, I just wanted to say to you, I just wanted to personally thank you for your writing. Your books, uh, as I've told you before, have had an incredibly uh, powerful, formative influence on me. I read uh, The Jesus I Never Knew in my late teens, and I was just captivated by it. Not only the message, but your style of writing that was so honest and this kind of journalistic approach to the topic. And it's funny because I when I started writing myself, I realized that all of my articles uh, kind of read like poor man's versions of Philip Yancey. So <laughs> it's no exaggeration to say that I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if it wasn't for your writing. So I felt like I had to acknowledge that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, we we labored in the same vineyard for a while, didn't we, at Christianity Today? So that honors me to hear you say that. Thank you, Drew. That's right. We did. We didn't overlap. But yeah, you're right. We have that that common uh, touch point. Um, the first question I wanted to ask you, Philip, uh, is just how you are holding up. What does your life look like right now? Well, I'm an introvert and I'm a writer, and so my life hasn't changed <laughs> that much. Uh, I'm still in my basement office. I'm doing more of these kind of interviews than I've done before. And exercise is limited. Fortunately, I live in Colorado. There are wide open spaces. There's pure air. So it's easy to keep social distancing. I've done some hiking and some uh, bicycling, but I can't go to the gym. I avoid stores. You know, most of them are closed anyway. 
So my, my daily life hasn't changed that much, except that uh, our connections are mostly virtual now, even attending church. I'll sit there and watch two or three churches uh, drinking a cup of coffee in my sitting room. So uh, that has changed, but the grind Monday through Friday has not changed that much. Right. Um, yeah, I, I joke with people that when people ask how I'm holding up, I have to pretend that my life wasn't just as lame before this all happened as it is now because <laughs> <laughs> I work from home. And so I have a similar situation um, on your website. You write. And I love this. You write. It's my own fault because I've written books with titles like Where's God When It Hurts, Disappointment with God and The Question That Never Goes Away. My phone starts ringing when there's a mass shooting, a tsunami or a rogue virus that spreads across the world. I guess that does kind of set you up uh, for these types of questions when you've written on the topics uh, that you have. But my first question centers on that. I've seen a lot of different reactions from Christians to this pandemic. Just online, um, you see mm. some people saying, well, that's it. You know, we, we, we took God out of schools. We did this and that. And God's finally had enough. And he sent this scourge or this plague as a sort of judgment. Other Christians say, come on, God has nothing to do with this at all. I'm wondering, where do you fit in on that spectrum? How do you see something like this as it relates to God? I think it's very dangerous to speak for God, especially in, in the case of a global pandemic like this. Every country is affected. Mm. So it's, it's a stretch to say that God is specifically judging the United States because of some laws that we passed or whatever. Um, the closest I can come to understanding where we should be is to look at Jesus and how he responded to disasters of his own day. For example, in Luke 13, there are two kind of current events that involve death. One of them was a tower, the Tower of Siloam, that fell on some people and killed, I think, 18 of them. Another one was a terrorist event where some people were killed in the temple. And each time the disciples and the Pharisees would surround him as they often did in the face of suffering and say, okay, what's God trying to tell these people? Why were those people walking by the tower at that particular time? Why, why did they deserve this punishment? And each time Jesus would refute them and he would say, they're no different than anybody else. The real issue is if a tower fell on you today, would you be ready for that? Would you be ready for huh. death? And he took the question off of, uh, judgment, the why question, why did this happen? Why those particular people? Why did a tornado hit this town in in uh, Arkansas rather than another town? I, I don't think the Bible really gives us answers to those questions. So the question is, would you be ready if it happened to you? And now that the bad thing has happened, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond? How will you use this opportunity which is a negative opportunity, but an, but an opportunity nonetheless to examine your life and to respond in a productive way. That's good. Uh, hard to argue with Jesus. Um, <laughs> and I think in, in one way, that's you know, less spectacular, uh, you know, speculating about what might be behind something like this and yet more threatening because it's, hey, this is a time to examine you and your relationship to God. I'm wondering what ways, in what ways were you already prepared for this spiritually, emotionally, um, and in what ways surprised you about your reactions and feelings about this crisis? 
I had an experience, as you probably remember, Drew, a near-death experience in, in 2007. Yes. Um, I was on a book tour. Who, who knew they could be so dangerous? But it, <laughs> it was in February, and I was driving along a, a windy Colorado road early one Sunday morning and hit a patch of ice and ended up with the uh, the Ford Explorer I was driving turning over and over down a cliff five times in all as we paced it off later. And uh, ended up with a broken neck. Uh, I was in a hospital. They did some, they had a CAT scan. They did some x-rays and, and images. And we're not sure whether one of my major arteries had been punctured by a little sliver of bone because it was, it was that kind of fracture, what they call a comminuted fracture. I didn't know that word. But it's when it, there's not just a clean break, but a lot of little pieces. And the... The uh, doctor, uh, young guy, didn't have much bedside manner experience, <laughs> <laughs> said to me, well, uh, Mr. Yancey, we, we have determined that you have a broken neck and we have a jet standing by to fly you to Denver for emergency surgery. But I've got to tell you, if that, uh, if that artery has been punctured, you won't make it to Denver. So here's wow. a cell phone. And you should call the people that you love and tell them goodbye, just in case. Well, that's a wake-up call. You know, I'm just <laughs> no driving kidding. along the road on a book tour, and then, uh, boom, my life may be ending here. And as it turned out, because they, they were going back and forth uh, to Australia for the people reading the x-ray. They had an x-ray machine, but not a, not a radiologist. <laughs> so uh, I ended up lying there for seven hours, long time. So I had a lot of time to think about my life. And I decided there are only three things that are worth my time today to think about. Uh, things that I, that, obsess, that I obsess over, you know, getting my computer to working, how much money I have, how, much, um, how many books have I sold, those kind of things. <laughs> when you may die that day, those don't matter at all. I, mean, I didn't think one second about those things. And I could only come up with three things worth thinking about. Who do I love? Who will I call on that cell phone? Who do I love? What have I done with my life? Am I satisfied with it? What would I like to do that I haven't done yet? And am I ready for whatever is next? Hmm. And that may mean death. That may mean paralysis. I don't know what it means, but those were the only three questions I could come up with. And I, I, because I went through that, um, I've had other experiences that were, that were scary, but I never faced death in the face like that in in such a way and so i don't respond to this pandemic with fear frankly uh, nobody likes to get sick and i've read some accounts it can be pretty ugly sickness i don't look forward to that but i don't think it would throw me and i don't think it would i think i would come up with those same questions because i realized i should be running my life by those questions <laughs> i should be right organizing, you know, thinking about those things every day, not the things that I tend to obsess over. How has it changed? What surprised me? Well, I suppose the biggest surprise or the biggest adjustment was just the lack of control. Mm. Things that my, my normal routine is just ripped away. I had an exercise routine. I would go to the store this day. I'd go to the bank this day. I'd um, you know, I had, I was in control of my life, I thought. <laughs> and then suddenly, boom, I'm not in control of my life. And I, I think that's why 
these disasters are, are can be helpful. I've seen these surveys where people are asked, "What at what time did you grow most spiritually?" And eighty percent of people talk about a very hard time. It may be you know after nine eleven or when a child was born with a birth defect or uh, rolling off a cliff. In my case, you know, and um, the the difference is. Our, we do go through life thinking we're in control, and then every once in a while we realize we're not. It could end today. And how do you respond to that? You could either whine and complain, or you could say, what can I learn from this, and how should I change? How should I adjust my life in light of the reflective time that I've had in this experience? That's so good and so true because there is that illusion of control and something like this kind of a black swan event that just comes along and changes your life dramatically overnight uh, strips that away. And if there's a silver lining uh, to a crisis like that, um, maybe it's it's helping you clarify and distill what's most important. Um, In fact, there's there's a great chapter on that great prayer, Psalm 46 where uh, the psalmist is describing events even more earth-shaking than the coronavirus, mountains thrown into the sea, kingdoms rising and falling, you know. And, and he concludes, be still and know that I am God. Uh, that's the issue. Who's in control? You think you're in control, but we're not. God is in control. And a cataclysm, a catastrophe is a good time to realize that and not to respond with panic, but to respond with trust. God is in control. He's not thrown by these things. Somehow God has promised that he will make good out of no matter what happens. So true. And sometimes the mountains need to shake a little before we realize that. (laughs) Um, You had a great friendship and and, uh, collaboration with your late friend, uh, Dr. Paul Brand. Uh, And many of the topics that you two tackled were um, looking at the physical world, uh, when things that, you know, that come along that are painful, uh, and yet, uh, sometimes necessary. I'm wondering if this crisis, this, this coronavirus has you thinking about Paul Brand. It has in a lot of ways. One way is just the way we respond to people who are, Contagious. <laughs> Dr. Oh. Bram was a leprosy specialist, and he worked with with people, some of the most abused people on this planet. As it turns out, leprosy is not a very contagious disease at all. You have to be around someone for a long time, and, and about 90 to 95 percent of people have a built-in immunity, so they couldn't even catch the disease. Yet, because of the fear of contagion, leprosy people were treated like pariahs throughout history, made to live outside in a pile of rocks somewhere, wear a bell around their neck so that if anybody heard you coming, they would run away, you know. And I have seen up close, as I've gotten to know leprosy patients, that uh, how we treat people with a contagious illness is is really critical. Obviously, we, in, in this case, because we don't have a good treatment, we don't have a vaccine, Everybody is using this protective equipment. But at the same time, we need to show you are still part of the human race. And especially if you, if it's a family member, if it's a friend, we may not be able to go and visit them in person in, in their home or in a hospital. Most states are not allowed to do that. But let them know 
we believe that you will be you will recover 85 percent of people do recover and we're still thinking of you praying for you loving you don't treat people with coronavirus COVID 19 like history has treated people with leprosy it's a great tragedy and it scars people for life um, they're still human beings they're still objects of our love so let's remember them and let's treat them in in that way and then dr brand was the one um who who taught me most about the about how the human body is like the body of christ and we wrote a couple of books of that one of them is a reissued fearfully and wonderfully which updates a lot of the material we worked at together and i i remember one line especially he said a healthy body is not a body that feels no pain that was his great contribution in the field of leprosy because he he demonstrated that all of the damage that we're so familiar with in movies and in books that occurred to leprosy patient patients occur because they lack the gift of pain as he described it and they would lose their fingers lose their feet just because they didn't feel pain so they would injure them and an infection would set in and gradually they would lose whole limbs they go blind because they lacked a little pain cell that makes us blink every few seconds hmm. so he would say a healthy body is not a gift it's not a body that feels no pain it's a body that attends to the pain of the weakest part and and that's what we should be doing in a crisis like this that that is what we're doing as a society attending to the pain of the weakest part those people with coronaviruses and it's not just those people you know there are other people who are in need of surgery or and are being pushed out of hospitals or having their surgery put off and and that's a scary thing and we should be looking for those not just with the coronavirus but those that are affected almost like collateral damage in an epidemic like this right wow that is that's such a theologically rich insight that he had about uh, a healthy body uh, being one that that attends to the pain of its weakest uh member um mm. i i loved your book soul survivor um and where you profile, I forget exactly how many, maybe a dozen uh, people. 13, that really, close. <laughs> 13. Oh, man, I was one off. Um, <laughs> seems like you could have stuck with 12 and made it more biblical. But, well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually, that was a book that introduced me to a lot of new folks. I think that was my introduction to Annie Dillard. Uh, incredibly grateful for that because I went and uh, ended up reading just about everything she's written. Um, uh, what? person on that list of 13 folks would you recommend that people read or read about during this crisis? I come up with two names. The first one is an old name, and that's John Donne. John Donne lived in the uh, early 1600s, and that was the time when bubonic plague was just devastating London. Uh, The whole city went empty streets were empty and every day uh, carts would come by and pick up the bodies. It was a a terrifying time. I think a third of Londoners died because of the plague. And John Dunn was the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral. He had quite an interesting past and he became the Dean, wrote rich, rich sermons. And then he became sick and he thought that he had bubonic plague it turned out that he didn't he had something like scarlet fever 
but the, the symptoms were similar and he assumed he was going to die. So he wrote this book called Devotions Upon Emergent, like emergency, emergent occasions, or sometimes it's just published under the name Devotions. Beautiful book that has 18 meditations. Some of them are quite famous. For whom the bell tolls, it tolleth for thee. That's that's part of one of the uh, one of the meditations there. So he has a lot to teach us. Just rich, rich theology. You got to you got to work at the English. This was back in the King James era, sure. <laughs> and uh, you know you, you really have to work at it. I at one point I had the idea of kind of doing to that what maybe Eugene Peterson had done to the message, just updating the language, but oh. uh, never got around to that. So he's one just rich, rich theology. I learned so much about the proper Christian response to what's going on because he was meditating not just on his own plight, but uh, every day they would be having funerals in, in St. Paul's. And how do you do that as a pastor? And then one more people, one more person I'll throw in there. And that's uh, Surgeon General C. Everett Koop. He was living as uh, the top doctor in the United States when the when the AIDS HIV ep epidemic hit. And that had all sorts of ramifications. Of course, there was one group that was most at risk, and those were homosexual men at first. And then later it, it uh, spread to other categories. But Christians didn't respond very well responded in a very judgment-oriented way. And Dr. Koop was a strong Christian, Presbyterian. His faith was clear. He worked on a series of videos with uh, Francis Schaeffer. And here he is in the in, responsible for the health of the United States. And then there are some Christians who are saying, this is God's judgment, let them suffer. How do you respond? And his response, I think, was a uh, a beautiful example of how you can you can stick to your convictions, because uh, he had he had pretty firm traditional views about homosexual behavior, but as a doctor, his job and as a Christian, his job was to love and to uh, do everything he could to save their lives, and he really turned the corner on the government response. So those those two have direct application to what we're going through today. That's awesome. Yeah, two to people whose work and life are suddenly feeling timely again. Um, yeah, I, I um, so appreciate Dunn. <laughs> you know, uh, it's funny. Mm -hmm. I, I got to mansplain to someone the other day who said, for whom the bell tolls was a Hemingway reference. And I said, well, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> not really. <laughs> not, not first, anyway. Um, so what have you seen during this crisis that gives you the most hope? Never in history until now have we been able to have virtual communities like we have now. So I'm getting emails from people who are reading my books in their small group, and they'll take a, you know one of these screenshots of ten or twelve people all smiling and waving and say, "We're studying your book here," awesome. almost as if you were here. And of course, uh, most churches almost all churches are scrambling around to have some sort of online presence. And as I said earlier, I can sit in my, my den and, and watch two or three churches in a row. So I, I've been watching Holy Trinity Brompton in London, mm -hmm. as well as my church and some others in Denver here. And 
I hope on Easter Sunday, I'm going to try to tune into All Souls Langham Place, also in London, where John Stott was the minister for many years. I figured they, they know how to do Easter Sunday. <laughs> right. So that's new, that the virtual community. The other thing that gives me hope is, is tough, honest leadership. Uh, mm. Dr. Fauci, uh, you know, the whole, the whole country tunes in to say, what's, got, what's Dr. Fauci have to say to us today? And then um, yes. his colleague, Francis Collins, I just watched a yes. one-hour interview with him put on by Biologos, and I think Christianity Today co-sponsored that. A devout Christian with one of the toughest jobs in the world, my goodness, mm. head of the National Institutes of Health. And if there is a cure, if there is a vaccine, it's going to come out of people working for Francis Collins. So he's in a strategic role. And the fact that they stand up and and, and are truthful and honest and mm -hmm. tell us that hardest weeks are ahead of us. Uh, get ready. You know, we need that. That's the kind of tough leadership that people can respond to. And Americans do tend to rally around in, in the time of crisis. We've done that historically. And um, I'm pleased to see that we're doing it again, reaching out, finding creative ways to to be what the Canadians call care mongers. They said, we're not going to be fear mongers. We're going to be care mongers. And I, I like that. And I see a lot of evidence of it. That's great. Oh, man. Um, well, we have a segment uh, uh, this season called The Writing Life, where we ask writers about their writing life. And um, my question for you is, you've written so much about suffering. Um, and when you do that, you're really meeting people, even though it's through the medium of the written word, so you're not physically present with them necessarily, but you're meeting people often at their point of pain because they're driven to that book because of some crisis or loss that has affected them. I'm wondering, what's that like? Is it, is it more intimate? Does it even feel pastoral to, to kind of adopt that role and write about suffering? Yes, it is. I, I feel honored to be invited in to their lives at such a tender moment. My wife, whose name is Janet, worked as a hospice chaplain. And when she started, I thought, oh my goodness, you're going to be dealing with death every day. <laughs> and, you know, what's it going to be like? Are you just going to go walk around in gloom all day? And and she's the one who taught me, no, I, I feel privileged. To, and uh, it, it's just a precious thing to be invited into people, into people's lives and to be able to let them talk. Uh, so many people feel uncomfortable around pain they they want you know we have get well cards we don't have while you're sick cards you know? we, <laughs> we want them to get well and and some people don't get well uh, people with ALS some of these chronic diseases and even in the church we tend to take apparent miracles of healing and we write books about them and those are great and they're inspiring one time when i spoke on the topic in my church i brought uh, a file drawer it had 1,000 letters, more than 1,000, of people who had been through a very difficult time, and many of them, most of them weren't healed. That's why they're writing me, because I write books mm. like Where God When It Hurts and Disappointment with God. And I, I put it out there on a stool and just told some of the stories. And in some ways, we do a disservice by only shining the spotlight on people with a happy ending. 
people with right. the, the the miracle. And I believe in miraculous healings. I pray for it whenever one of my friends comes down with a chronic illness. But they're they're called miracles for a reason. They're not everyday occurrences, and mm. they're, they're mysterious. But they're not called ordinaries. They're called miracles. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so. Um, I, I think we, we do a disservice and often people who don't experience a miracle think, well, I've done something wrong or I didn't have enough faith or I'm being punished. You know, it brings up all these other things. And and I just look at, um, at how Jesus responded to suffering people. Now, he had miraculous powers and in every case, except in his own hometown where there was no faith. In every case, he, he worked miracles of healing. But... Um, just look at how you responded. He never responded with, with judgment or he never philosophized about why the thing happened. He just responded mm. with the comfort and the healing that he could bring. And I, I hope that we have that same tender compassion. Uh, Jesus wept when his friend died. Um, mm. That's, that's a model for us around people. And, and, um, there's a great phrase in second Corinthians one, Paul talks about the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Mm. Boy, that, that just, that summarizes how God feels. And I'll, I'll say about pain, there are some things I don't know the answer to, like the why questions we talked about earlier. But I do know how God feels because it's the God of all comfort. It's the father of compassion. And God gave us a face, the face of Jesus. And I follow Jesus around and just see how he responds. Never with judgment, never saying you you don't have enough faith. I, I'm not going to touch you. Uh, but always, always reaching out with, with comfort and with hope. And that's what we're supposed to do. Paul goes on to say, so the comfort you, we've received from the God of all comfort, we're commissioned to spread abroad to those in need. And I think that's that's what we should be doing. So I, I feel honored. Um, those letters in that file drawer are, are some of the most valuable possessions I have because they're they're people's stories, people at a at a an urgent time of their life, and to trust me um, because I wrote about it, I I kind of prompted them, and, and and then they share their own stories. A lot of people feel uncomfortable around those with pain and. They don't want to hear, or they immediately come in. Oh yeah, I remember when I had surgery one time, and you know, <laughs> they're not really listening. Um, but but if you do it right, it really is a a place of spiritual tenderness for sure. Yes, and speaking of those letters um, that you receive, you're known as a great uh, letter writer, emailer, whatever uh, the case may be. I spoke to a friend I remember years back who said that during a particularly difficult season in his life, he had written to you and you'd written back these long, you know, two page letters. I'm sure you can't do that for everyone. Um, but yeah, can you speak a little bit more about what it's meant for you to correspond with these people who, who reach out to you uh, and ask you questions about suffering and doubt? What has that meant for you personally? Well, for one thing, it's guided my writing. I, oh, I'll bet. I wrote one of my first books was Where is God When It Hurts? And I got a number of letters from people saying, well, that's very interesting. Um, 
it, but it's mostly about physical pain, and that's not really my problem. My problem is I'm angry at God because I had a, a child who died uh, just a few days after birth, or um, because I, I have this chronic illness and I can cope with the physical pain, but just I, I can't do what I believe I was called on earth to do, and, and I'm deteriorating, and I'm just disappointed. This is not the I, if God loves me, why would this happen? And so out of that, I wrote the book, Disappointment with God. <laughs> and there are other books that came later that flowed directly from letters I wrote, people who are upset with the church. And I started thinking, well, why, why is there a church? And I wrote a little book called Church, Why Bother? So that that has been a true exchange back and forth. You know, I don't have, I'm not a professor, so I don't have students. I'm not a pastor, so I don't have parishioners. In a sense, my, the people I am directing my words to are people I don't know. They're anonymous out there until they write me. And then when they write me, we started a dialogue instead of a monologue. A book is a monologue, but when you hear back and have that kind of interaction, that is a, a true dialogue. And that's that's helped me. It's been a, a guiding influence in my writing and what I choose to write about. That's awesome. And I hope by bringing that up, it doesn't mean you get another wave of letters uh, expecting a response. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I get a lot more emails these days than, uh, than letters sure. in the old days. It was the letters, but uh, now it's emails. <sighs> yep. Yep. Things have changed. Um, we got another segment we're doing this season called Guilty Pleasures. And this is just where I'm asking writers during this time where we're stuck inside uh, life can be a little monotonous. Of course, there's the anxiety, the fear about the crisis. What has helped you? What guilty little pleasure has helped you mm -hmm. get through this challenging time? Well, there's always ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you too, huh? Um, yeah, that's mine. <laughs> and I suppose, uh, like many people, we have watched more movies recently than than we normally do. So this past weekend, for example, we watched two very fine, very thoughtful movies. One of them was 1917, about the World War One, And another one was The Two Popes, extremely well-written movie about um, something that happened in our lifetime when Pope Benedict resigned and, and then Pope Francis took over. Uh, it's, it's a visual culture and we're sitting there watching the news and it, I found it's it's better <laughs> to be taken away from that constant stream of charts and coronavirus updates on CNN or whatever news program you yes. watch, uh, just to be lifted out and taken back to places where they face different crises. And um, that's that's what books and movies do. They just lift us out of our surrounding environment and take us back in time or space to something new. And I think that's a very healthy thing. Yeah, especially right now. A little uh, distraction is sometimes a reprieve, especially from the news. Um, well, Philip, thank you so much for your time. Uh, obviously, uh, this is a somber topic that we've been talking about, uh, but it's really been a joy. 
Um, and I want to encourage our listeners, if you are one of the five Christians who hasn't read a Philip Yancey book, <laughs> please go and remedy that right now. Pick one out today. Um, given the circumstances we're in, you may want to start uh, with one of his books addressing the painful questions of where God is in the midst of pain and suffering. Uh, our theme for this season is uh, press on. And uh, that's difficult right now, uh, but I think it's essential. And I hope that it doesn't sound like a, a cheesy sentiment of positivity. It's taken, of course, from scripture, from the words of the Apostle Paul. And I want to read those really quick. He says, and, and of course, Paul knew a thing or two about hardship. He said, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So I want to leave you with that. Listeners, um, this week, as you're dealing with uncertainty and fear, as you're praying for people that are sick, as you're thinking about your own situation, uh, to press on, uh, knowing, as Philip has reminded us, that God is compassionate and tender towards us. Um, I want to thank you again for joining us. Uh, for now, stay home until we have a different directive. Uh, stay safe, wash your hands, do all those kinds of things. At the same time, I want to encourage you to think of creative ways to love your neighbor, uh, those people who are uh, physically close or physically distant from you, uh, those people that are most at risk, uh, that might be feeling the pain of isolation uh, more than the rest of us. Please find ways to reach out to them, creative ways, even if, if that means staying physically distant uh, and press on. And until next time, keep reading. Thank you. Thank you.